It's great to worship with our family at Eastside Christian Church. It's always just a very, very special treat. And I'm going to keep on rambling like this until the lights come on, okay? So it is good to have you. And I don't know who controls the lights, but I'm assuming none of you have left because I can't see any of you. Thank you for being here. There they are. All right. Man, so much. It is so good to be in the house of God. And I'm just grateful that you came today. And welcome to our online people, man. We're just thrilled to have you guys too. Wherever you're at, we, we hear every week, we hear other people who are checking Eastside Christian Church out. I mean, literally across America, we hear those stories. So thank you so much. You know who you are. We're glad to have you and just happy to be. So today, uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. And so if you have a Bible, you can find that. And if you got it maybe on your app somewhere on a phone, you can check that out. And in a few minutes, we're going to dive in uh, to that chapter, and it's going to help you to be able to look at it a little bit today. I, I, I imagine it was about 20 years ago. It might have been a little bit longer than that, but a couple decades or so ago, there was a a traveling leadership conference. That's, I, I think that's the best way that I can explain it. It was this thing called success. And it was plastered on great big advertisements in newspapers, if some of you remember what those used to be. And, and it, was, it was these celebrity people, famous people, that they would incorporate in this traveling group of speakers. And they would go to cities all over America. And I can still remember, for $49, you got to go for a day in whatever city you went to and hear some people speak whom you just had heard about. And the idea was that we're going to gather all these people together and they're going to tell us how to live successful lives. And so I still remember that. I'll never forget that traveling conference. And I went two or three times. One of the years I went, one of the speakers was Barbara Bush. Uh, she was the first lady of our 41st president, uh, George H.W. Bush. And uh, Mrs. Bush was one of the featured speakers that day, which was really, really cool. And she got up to speak, and she told a story about her son, who at that time was the 43rd president of the United States. So you had kind of the older George and his wife Barbara speaking, and their son was the president. And so she told a story about when the younger George uh, had come to visit their house at, at, in Texas. And so she said, uh, George was there, the dad, the son, and we had dinner. And then Mrs. Bush said, we went into the, the living room and we were going to relax a little bit and visit. And she said, uh, my son George kind of plopped down in the couch and he put his feet up on the coffee table. And she said, I looked at his feet, and I said, get your feet off my coffee table. And her husband, the older George, 41, looked at his wife and said, you can't talk to him like that. He's the president of the United States. And she said, I don't care who he is, I don't want his feet on my coffee table. And everybody laughed and laughed, and it just gave us this feel that those are just normal people, just like us. 
So the next Sunday when I preached, I told that story, and I mean the place just erupted in laughter, and we all kind of got this feel that they're just normal people just like us, and it was really cool to be able to talk about something like that. And then, and, and then, somebody say, and then, and then an email came in, and then another one came in. How could you do dare mention his name in our church. Do you know some of the things he has supported? And I remember writing at that time, I brought it with me here. I wrote this as an example of that. Can we put that slide up here on the screen? I had no idea making fun of the feet of a Republican would rile up the anger of a Democrat. I had no idea that was gonna happen. But it happened. And I was in shock over it. Andy Stanley is the lead pastor of North Point Community Church, one of our largest churches in America, uh, situated in Atlanta. And during Barack Obama's administration, Andy was reading an article, he said in his sermon, about President Bush, uh, 43, the foot guy, okay? He was reading an article about him, and Andy said that he found out in the article that every morning in the White House, President Bush had a devotional time with his Bible. And Andy had heard that in addition to reading his Bible, that he had read his dad's book, the well-known Charles Stanley, great pastor in Atlanta. And Andy told that story to his church, that our president has devotions in the morning, and he read my dad's devotional book. And Andy made the statement, if the president can have a quiet time, you should have a quiet time. And the place erupted in, in applause, and it was so cool that the president does this, and he read your dad's book. And then, somebody say, and then, and then the emails started coming. How could you support a president who does X, Y, Z? I'm ashamed of you, Pastor. And so a little lady Reynolds things out, Andy in North Point hosted a time with Michelle Obama. And there were people who thought it was the greatest thing in the world that they had Mrs. Obama there. Greatest thing the church ever did. And then the emails, we're out of here. You're not getting one more dollar from us. And so Andy announced the next week, which I thought was beautiful, that they had decided as the leadership of the church that they would become an equal opportunity offender. So everybody's going to get offended. And it reminds me of the old corny joke about Joe Biden and Donald Trump accidentally meeting each other up in an airport, and it wasn't long that they're in an argument, and Mr. Trump says to Mr. Biden, I can't believe last week that you brought up the Bible in one of your speeches. You've never read the Bible. And Mr. Trump said to him, I'll bet you $1,000 you can't even quote the Lord's Prayer. And Mr. Biden said, you are on, you're on. And he started quoting the Lord's Prayer right there in the airport in front of everybody. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And Mr. Trump said, what do you know? I didn't think you could do it. But that is an equal opportunity offender. Actually, here's, here's where I hope we get. I love this quote from Dr. Billy Graham. Check this out. I'm not for the left wing, I'm for the right wing. I'm for the whole bird. I love that. I love that. So, why, why am I talking about those things? Because nothing divides us like politics. 
And I want to address that over the next few weeks. Now, just to ease people, I don't want you to worry. We will not endorse a candidate. We will not endorse a party. We will not shout our position on hot social issues. We're not going to tell you you should do anything with this at all. We are not even going to talk about how to be good Americans. But here's what we are going to talk about. We're going to learn together how to be faithful followers of Jesus at a time when the political climate in our country is dividing us. How can you be a follower of Jesus and not get caught up in all the craziness? And I just think we need to deal with it as a church. In 2020, it was four years ago now, during the presidential election in 2020, things started really getting heated and really divisive in our country, and it was really bad. Those of you who remember, you know that. And so there were a lot of churches in America who came up with a teaching series, and it just kind of spread like fire in churches. And the teaching series was the separation of church and hate. And all kinds of churches did a series of teaching about that. And I remember when it started coming on, and I noticed it happening all over, I made the decision, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get caught up in that. We're not going to do that at Eastside. <laughs> Man, I was just having fun baptizing people into Jesus. I didn't want to get into that mess. And I remember saying in 2020, okay, if, if it's still going on in 2024, maybe we'll do it. But surely, surely things will calm down by then. <laughs> oh, that did not come true, did it? And so here we are. Here we are again. I don't know that our country has ever been as divided and as mean-spirited and as hateful as we are today. See, we can't, we can't even agree to disagree. And conversations that start out rational quickly become emotional. We don't have journalists anymore. We have antagonists. Debates are, are no longer, this is the good I bring to the table. No, debates are, what's all the garbage that you brought to the table? And here's, let's be honest about it. And this is the reason why I think we need to do this, is because a lot of us Christians, including the one who's talking to you right now, find it very easy to get caught up into that. And so because of that, I just... I just think we ought to deal with it for a little bit. I purposely put it in the primary season. I purposely put it right here. I shared with a pastor, a friend of mine over coffee last week. I said, man, I'm nervous about this. I don't know if it's the right thing to do. I, I, it's kind of breaking out of the what's normal here, and I'm going to deal with stuff I've never dealt with. And he looked at me and he said, bud, you have a responsibility to preach about that. And so for the next three weeks, as the political temperature is heating up, and if you pay attention at all, dude, it heated up today. And as that keeps getting hotter and hotter and hotter, we're going to borrow the title of separation of church and hate, and we're going to deal with that. Now, we got a better graphic than they do, because we have Miss Sarah Morton that does ours, okay? So we're going to use her graphic, and uh, we're going to hit this head on, and we're going to look at what God wants us to do in the middle of this as followers of Jesus. And I think when we're all done, we're going to spend three weekends on it, okay? I think when we're all done, 
here's where I hope that we end up. So I'm going to tell you the end before we ever get there. That doesn't mean you skip, okay? But I want to tell you where I hope we end up, and I hope we end up right here. And that is Christians don't live in attack mode. That's not what we do. And see, that might, that might be something that somebody needs to hear concerning their marriage. And it might be something dealing with raising teenagers. And it might be something going on at your work. And it might be relationships that exist in a church. And dude, it is really true in the political world. That's not what Christians do. We don't do that. And so it seems to me that that is kind of the, the gist of what the Apostle Paul tried to present to some very dear friends of him in a city called Philippi. And he wrote a beautiful little love letter to them, four chapters, one of the most tender books in the whole Bible, the book of Philippians. And in the second chapter, he dealt with that. And what I'd like to do over three weeks is I want to just kind of read through that chapter, the first half of it. And I'm going to break it down as we go through our study today. And I want to be able to see what God is going to tell us to do when it comes to this issue that we're all living in, but everybody's afraid to mention anything about it. And so we're going to hit it head on. So today, I want to do chapter two, and I want to look at the first two verses. And, and you're going to hear them. We're going to read through them. I'm going to show them. Hopefully, you'll follow on, on your Bibles or your, or your app on your phone. There is a flow through these two verses that lead to a very powerful challenge for anybody here who loves Jesus, a very powerful challenge, but you've got to see the flow. So let's start with verse one. I'm going to read verse one. We'll have it up on the screen for those of you who don't have a copy of it. So let me read it, and then I'm going to make some sense of it. It goes like this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. So that's kind of a mouthful in verse 1, right there. And, and I'm going to be, y'all know, okay, this gets me in trouble a lot of times. I just am a real dude, man. I just reel with you. There's, there's verses like that in the Bible that just seem, man, it's a lot of mumbo gumbo, and it's just, and, and it's like, what? And we just cruise right on by it. You know you do that. I do too. So let me, let me make sure that you see what's happening here, because this first verse is critical to understanding the whole second chapter. Actually, what he did with this verse is he talked about four conditions, and here's what they are. United with Christ, comfort from his love, fellowship with the Spirit, tenderness and compassion. So he mentions all four of those conditions of a person, and you probably notice that every one of them began with this. If you have, boom, 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 boom. So if these are yours, if any of this has ever happened to you, is the point. Now, it's really helpful that you can understand that the word if that he uses is kind of a goofy word because it can also be used in another way. In fact, some versions translate verse 1 that way with the word since. Since you have, you being united with Christ, comfort from his love, and these things. 
And what I want you to understand is what he's doing with the first verse is he is clarifying this. Nobody miss it. He's saying, I'm talking to Christians. I'm talking to Christians. And so if, if it were you and I, we might write that verse by saying something like this. So since you go to church, since you believe in Jesus, since you pray, since you live a certain life of behavior pleasing to God, in other words, he's trying to say, I want you to know that everything I say in chapter two is about Christians. It is not about people who are not in the family here. So he just clarifies this in the first verse in a way that is incredibly important. He's trying to make sure we understand that if you're a Christian, listen, listen, this is for you. Now, if you know somebody who's not a Christian, this text is not talking to them. It's talking only to Christians. And so why is that important? Why is that important? The reason it's important is because one of the central doctrines of the Bible, please hear me on this, one of the most powerful things the Bible teaches is that those who follow God, those who accept Christ in their life, that they are distinct from everybody else. In fact, the Bible calls it holy. That God is holy and his people are to be holy. And the whole concept of holy is that you are separated, you're distinct, you're different from everybody else. Let me give you a little metaphor that you can understand that. Anybody ever seen those uh, go to like maybe a kid's restaurant or something and they got those pits with all those plastic balls like Chuck E. Cheese and you know, other satanic establishments like that. So you've all seen that. And they got all these balls in there, all kinds of different colors that the kids get in there and play. Which my personal opinion, that's where COVID came from, but I, I don't know. So if you went up to one of those pits and you took the yellow balls, okay, just the yellow ones. Notice I didn't say red or blue, <laughs> y'all with me? You take the yellow balls and you take all the yellow balls and put them over here. And they are now separated from all the other ones. They are distinct. They are holy. They're not like them. And the Bible is emphatic. It's, it's in overtime trying to say all the different times that it does that when you become a Christian, you're making the decision, I will not be like everybody else. And over and over the Bible does that. Give me just a few minutes and show you a few places because it's important that you catch this. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 20, 24th verse, where God told the Israelites, I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the other nations. You're not like them. You're not like them. Everything about you is to be different. Notice how it comes up in Ephesians chapter four. So the apostle Paul told his Christian friends in Ephesus, so I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. He's saying, man, we're not messing here, okay? I insist on it 
that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And the Gentiles was a metaphor of people who were distanced from God. And Paul's saying, we don't live like them. We're different. We're holy. Look at this one from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. And you read that, but you, man of God. And you might say, Wait, what, what's that about, okay? What, what's the deal there? Well, look at 1 Timothy down here. It was written by Paul, the older statesman apostle, who wrote to the younger pastor Timothy, kind of in a mentoring thing. And what he was talking about in chapter 6 is how Timothy deals with money. And he described in this chapter how the world deals with money, how they long for money, and how they do anything to get more money, and they go crazy about getting money, and what they do with money. And then he goes into chapter 6, verse 11, and he says this, but you, but you, Timothy, you, man of God, you don't handle money like that. So the Bible is just overboard, over and over and over, wanting us to know that if you are a Christian, please hear me, we don't act like people not in our family here. We're not like them. We don't look like them, we don't talk like them, we don't think like them, we don't feel like them. We are completely different. When I was a teenage boy growing up in the 70s, a boy's hair was his life. And so it started getting longer, and you were somebody when you got longer hair. And I know I look like I'm in my 30s, but back in the 70s, man, if you could get some long hair, and all my buddies had long hair. The problem was that I had a dad who thought that meant you were a girl. And so my dad, about every other week, would grab my brother and I and put us in the car, and he would take us over to his dad's, our grandpa, one of the nicest men I've ever met in all my life, my grandpa Cronkite. But about every other week, we had to go to grandpa's house, and grandpa would give us a haircut. And if you've ever heard about those stories, it's true. We're talking a bowl. I'm telling you, okay? And you clip everything under the bowl, and then what my grandpa did, because we would comb our hair over this way, he would take the front part and comb it down, and he would cut it like this. And then you could whip it over there, and it looked really cool. Well, it didn't stay up there. It came down like this all the time. And then you were shaved here. And I hated that. And I remember a conversation I was having with my dad one time. Dad, you gotta let me grow it out, man. You gotta let me. And why? He said, why? And I said, because all the boys have long hair. He said, no, they don't. I said, yes, Dad, they do. Look at them. You see, they all got long hair. And he said this, you don't. <laughs> Why? Because in his eye, I was one of the yellow balls, see? I was to be different. I was to be distinct. And the Bible, again, on overload, makes sure that we know that, that we understand that. And so here we're in the second chapter of Philippians, and Paul's going to get down to some nitty-gritty here in a few minutes, and he starts in the first verse and says, now make sure who we're talking about. We're talking about Christians. We're not talking about the pagan that works with you. We're not talking about your non-Christian family. 
We're talking about you in the family of God. We're talking about you. And once that is established in the very first verse, then he moves into the second verse. And notice what he writes at the start of verse 2. I put it up here. So if you're Christian, since you're Christian, watch this. Then make my joy complete by. Make me happy. So if you're Christian, make me happy. That's what he said. Now, when the Apostle Paul wrote, which he wrote most of the New Testament, nearly half of the New Testament, when he wrote it, he wrote it with the authority of an apostle. Everybody hear me on this. This is technical, but you got to hear it's important. And because he was an apostle, he wrote with the authority of an apostle, which meant that that which he wrote, he received from God directly as an apostle. So you as a Christian, if you were to write things down, if you're going to do a Bible study someday, you write it all down, it might be really good stuff. God might put his favor on it, but God didn't give it directly to you. Apostles did. So when Paul said, I want you to make me happy, he wasn't saying that he's God. He never claimed to be God, but he was saying, I represent God. I have a direct representation of the Father as an apostle. And so he brings this idea that if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, then what Paul is asking us to do is to do what would make God happy, what would please God. And so the flow of the text becomes this. Let's put it up there. We're talking about Christians and what is unique about Christians. What is different about people who follow Jesus from everybody else not in our family? What's the unique thing about us? Here it is. We seek first to please God in every single thing we do. That is our first inclination whenever we make a decision, whenever we've got something to do, we will stop and ask, what would God want us to do in a way that would bring him pleasure? Does the world do that? No, they don't even think that. It never even comes up. When you're considering what's the best thing to do here, what's the best decision, what can I do here, what can't I do there, what should I, you think of all those things, here's what Christians do. We first consider what would please him. Now, many of y'all in the room, you might be way beyond me, but man, I struggle with that every day. Is anybody like me? You jump into something and realize you jumped into something you shouldn't have jumped into because you didn't stop long enough to ask, what would God want me to do? Am I the only one in the joint? Uh, now, I know I'm not. I know I'm not. I remember a time I was at a red light. There was a car in front of me, and the light turned red, and the car in front of me stayed there because they were distracted. They're probably looking at their phone or something, and uh, it just got kind of embarrassing. You know, it was five, six, seven seconds, and I'm usually the guy in the front, okay? And so I was in a hurry to go somewhere, and it frustrated me that they weren't paying attention, and so I hit the horn. Now, it wasn't a beep, beep like Christians ought to do, Okay. Man, I laid it on. I got to go, lady. And man, I laid it on. And you know when you lay it on, you know somebody's upset with you. And this person looks through the mirror, 
and I about died. It was the wife of one of the deacons in our church. And I'm like, oh, flabbergasted. And so she takes off, and I took off, and I tried to stay with her as close as I could, because I'm thinking, man, I gotta get out of this somehow. And there came a time where the lane split, I got off to the side, and I went up next to her, and we put our windows down, and I said, hey, I just trying to get your attention. Hope you have a great day. You're awesome. I love your husband. See you Sunday. And they teased me for weeks on that. And when I was sitting there at the red light, man, I did not think at all what God would want. It never even entered in my head. I never even thought it. But Christians learn to get good at that. Christians learn to make that happen. And so that is the challenge for those of us in a Christian community in every area of our lives. Train ourselves to ask and be patient enough to pause what would please him. So the flow of the text is that Christians are unique because they first seek the pleasure of God. Now, once you have that established, and, and listen, dude, we're, we're just talking the first verse and the first few words of the second verse. All that's right there. And some of you right now are saying, okay, well, what's this have to do with politics? What, where does this come in? Well, look at the second part of the second verse. Watch this. Christians seek the pleasure of God. Watch this. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Watch this. We don't do what they do. Their world is not what we do. We seek the pleasure of God because we belong to him. So what would please him? What would make God happy? And Paul tells us to be like-minded to be of the same love, to be one in spirit and purpose. And you'll see that I've highlighted these particular words here, like, same, and one. Would somebody say one here? Okay, because that's gonna be important in a few minutes. All of these words are saying that God is pleased, watch this, when we come together in unity and land in the same place. That's what God really gets excited about. Now, that might not sound much to you until you hear this, that Philippi was one of the most diverse places on earth. And their church was comprised of people from all sorts of backgrounds. There were men and women there. There were some people who spoke Greek and other people who spoke Latin. There were some who were Roman citizens. There were others who were foreigners. 
There were theological debates where some people in the Philippian church thought that you're going to get right with God when you obey all of his laws. And there were other people in the church that said, that's not how you get right with God. You get right with God by the beauty of his grace. And they argued about it. There were two chicks in the church named Euodia and Syntyche who got their banners all up in a wad somehow and were fighting each other, probably over who had the ugliest name, Euodia and Syntyche. And it comes up in the fourth chapter where Paul says, can you women just get along for a little bit? So we got a church where there is diversity everywhere. I mean, there are all, all kinds of different pages. And Paul says, here's what will bring about the pleasure of God. When you agree that you will be together, you will come together on the one thing that unites you and that be more important than the things that divide you. So what unites us? Jesus. The salvation that we have in Jesus because we are brothers and sisters in Christ is more important than all this other stuff that would ever divide us. And so that's how Christians deal in a political world that is losing its mind and you can't say anything without attacks coming your way where Paul says, that's how the world does it. But we don't. We don't do that. Because we are united in Jesus, we come to understand that what we have in our unity in Christ is more important than any diversity we have. And so there you can see the flow of the chapter. Christians please God by their unity in the midst of their diversity. That we will be different. We will have different opinions. We'll have different thoughts. We might have different ways we do things. But that which we share in Jesus is more important than anything that would ever divide us. So we've played this game a number of times in our church. Every once in a while I just felt it's a good time to kind of play that game and remind us. So let's play it again real quick and you'll catch the point. I'm gonna count to three, one, two, three. And when I say three, I want you to yell out at the top of your lungs, your mother's maiden name, okay? So everybody think what it is, here we go. One, two, three. Okay, total diversity, did you hear that? Nobody heard a name, we just heard total diversity. Let's, let's do another one. If you could pick, okay, the team that you want to win the Super Bowl this week, and doesn't have to be the Chiefs, doesn't have to be the 49ers, be any team you want, okay? If you got to pick, that's the Super Bowl winner this year. I'm gonna get to three, you yelled out. One, two, three. Okay, diversity. Some of y'all delusional, okay? <laughs> Your team ain't winning, all right? Let, let's, let's keep going on. Um, if you could pick your favorite restaurant, all right? Let's just say your favorite restaurant you want to go eat tonight, favorite one. One, two, three. Okay, diversity. And you can get a lot there. Some of y'all going home to eat, right? Okay? So one, two, three, Jesus. One, two, three. Jesus. Unity 
in diversity. So here's what that means. I mean, it's easy when we talk about silly things like that. But because of Jesus, somebody in this church can vote red and somebody else can vote blue and they can go together on a mission trip to Arizona and be lifetime friends when they get back. Why? Because their unity in Jesus is more important than anything where they are diverse. And because of Jesus, somebody in the church can genuinely believe that the borders ought to be open so we can help people who need it. And somebody else in this church can believe we've got to build a wall to protect ourselves and they can sit down together because of Jesus over a cup of coffee and calmly explain their angle and then that night join up with their wives at their life group from church because of Jesus. And somebody in this church, because of Jesus, can see the benefits of canceling student debt. Just get rid of it. Release it from people. And somebody else can think there's something called personal responsibility that we ought to hold on to. And they ought to be able to sit together because of Jesus in the same row at church and raise their hands together when we sing worship songs about Jesus who canceled all of our debts. Do you see what we're getting at? is that in two verses, Paul said this, this is what will give God pleasure in a world that is so vitriol and divisive that it's lost its mind. This will bring a smile to his face that you and I, Christians, we are unified in Jesus and we might vote differently. And that's okay. Because if we vote for, doesn't take away what we have in Jesus. Is there an amen in the house of God from a believer? And that brings the pleasure of God. Now watch this. Watch this. So we've, we've, we've talked about this before. So it's a matter of hours before he dies. And he knows it. And so before the soldiers show up in the garden, he gets off alone and he begins to pray the last prayer he would ever pray on this earth. It's recorded for us. It's told to us in the 17th chapter of John and in what must have been the most intense prayer that Jesus ever prayed, so much that when Luke wrote about it, Luke said his blood capillaries burst under his skin and his sweat came out as blood. And so you read the 17th chapter of John and he first starts to pray for himself that, Father, you will give me the strength to endure what I'm going to endure over the next 12 hours. And then he prayed for his his disciples, the 11 guys still with him because he knew they're coming after them. And God, will you protect them? And he gets this. Then he starts to pray for you. That's right. 
start praying for you and for me and for anybody until he returns again who would come to an understanding of him as the Lord of their life. And he began to pray for the Christian community who would be on this earth from then on. Now think about that. Wrestle with that. It's the last time on earth that Jesus could pray for you. Man, think of all the things he could ask God to do for us. I mean, if God said, okay, Jesus, you got one minute. What do you mean do for all these people through these years? And Jesus only mentioned this. It's in John chapter 17, verse 21, that all of them, that's you and me, may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. See that word one? Remember when we said it? And Jesus prayed it before he died, and Paul brought it back into Philippians 2. It's the exact same word. And he said, that's how Christians act. We are unified in Jesus, even though we may be diverse in all kinds of areas. So you go home tonight, and you turn on CNN, and you're not going to hear any of that. And go ahead and flip over to Fox, and it ain't going to be there either. But will you commit something with me? That you walk into Eastside Christian Church, and you're going to see that in action. And that's how we're going to live, rather than to see who can scream their hate the loudest. That ain't our game. Father, the praise is yours for the example that you set with this. But I think it is in confession that we would share with you how difficult it is to practice that. Because there's a lot of people in the room who would say that when we when we shout our position loudly, we're only trying to get your truth evident. But you didn't ask us to do that. You ask us to be a light to the world of what unity looks like in a circle of diversity. Help that to happen in this church in a way that we've never seen. And you, Lord, you, you will be pleased. Amen and amen.